Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. It's commonly said that justice is blind, that both rich and poor have to face the same judgment in a fair trial, and that no one is above the law. But sometimes it can feel like things just aren't that black and white. In today's episode, we try to unpack how the law works in Australia, from the judges to the jury to when and how you should find a lawyer. We will look at the misconceptions of the law and find out how different is Australia's judicial system from episodes of Serial or Boston Legal. We welcome today the Law Society of New South Wales's Director of Legal Regulation, Anthony Lean, and Criminal Law Specialist, Andrew Teat, to answer a very simple question. Why should I trust the system? All right, Andrew, I previously asked you to explain the jury system and then the practice of swindling. So now I'm going to ask you something easy, which is to pretty much explain the whole criminal justice system. So... Sounds like a snap. No, Let's pre- do it. no pressure. But one thing that... I do often think about is that there are so many true crime podcasts and documentaries and series on Netflix. A lot of these series really do focus on when things have gone wrong in the justice system. And there's allegations thrown around, you know, phrases like miscarriage of justice, corruption. A lot of those shows and series are cases that have taken place in the US, serial, making a murderer, those types. How different are the Australian and American justice systems? On a surface level, there's not much difference, but for some different clothes and different setups, you wouldn't necessarily notice the difference immediately. Both systems have their foundation in the English law that came out with the first fleet and the uh, settlers that came to the US hundreds of years ago from, from England. So the systems have a similar basis. Of course, once you get stuck into the details, there's a thousand and one differences. But on a surface level, there's a lot in common. Judges, juries are 12 beyond reasonable doubt, those kind of fundamental parts of our justice system. When people watch these sorts of documentaries, they might be quite surprised when they see some of the way that these things take place. I mean, for example, you you can see a lot of the court proceedings or you see press conferences, those sorts of things. What are some of the biggest differences in how the two systems operate when it comes to trials? The biggest difference is to do with the jury system and the way we, we deal with the juries. In the US, there's an enormous amount of freedom uh, to approach juries and for juries to speak out after trials. Juries write books, juries give TV interviews, uh, juries have press conferences uh, after trials sometimes. In Australia, there's enormous protection for juries to the point where it's actually illegal to question a juror or try to find out what happened in the jury room. And both juries and journalists can get in trouble for that. What that means is when a juror in New South Wales or Australia is, is doing their job in the jury room, they can do that without worrying, geez, if I, if I vote this way, I'm going to be on the front page of the paper tomorrow or there'll be journalists chasing me down the streets. Really is that protection that jurors can do their job faithfully and honestly and not worry about repercussions or consequences afterwards if they vote the way someone doesn't like. It's quite a difference, right? People think about jury duty in Australia and in New South Wales and often it's if you Google it, there's often things about like how to get out of it and people want it. But I imagine if you're in the US and you think I could be on this 
amazing trial. Like I'm going to write a book. I'm going to be famous. Sure. It's a very, very different way that it, the people approach it then. There's a great John Grisham book that I really enjoyed reading uh, that is about the jury. I think it might be called The Jury. And the parties somehow get the lists of the juries and they investigate them and PIs go and follow the juries down the street. That couldn't be more different to Australia. Um, in New South Wales, certainly, we as lawyers know nothing about the jury. We can look at you, we can guess your age, we can guess your ethnicity, and that is where it finishes. We don't know who you are, where you're from, what you do. We know nothing about the juries and the trials. And to my mind, that's how it should be. And there shouldn't be any capacity to know that juror number 10 has a family member who has X or Y or Z and therefore is going to vote this way or that way. Uh, we treat juries as, in a sense, the blank slates that they should be when they come to a jury trial. So when a jury is selected, a jury panel comes in, which is far more than the 12, 30, 40, 50, 60 people. And you look around the room and you see a sea of faces, different ages, different backgrounds, different genders. Now, if you had their life story and their CV and 10 minutes sitting down with each of them, you'd find out a bit and maybe get a sense for their perspectives. But just to look at someone, you've really got no idea whatsoever about how they might vote, what they might think about the defendant or think about the various witnesses. Now, the consequence of that is the idea that you can carefully handpick the jury to get yourself you know, exactly the kind of jury that you want is sort of a myth because even if you could know more about these people, how can you predict how they'll react to a certain witness or how could you predict how they're likely to vote? Before every trial, I think lawyers inevitably end up talking about what the kind of jury you want because what else are you going to talk about? When it, comes <laughs> down, when it comes down to it, you just don't know. And even if you could know, even if you could say, you know, you really don't want, you don't want this demographic, if you then during your jury challenges knock out three identical people, everyone's going to go, geez, that's a bit dodgy, isn't it? And mm -hmm. it's not going to endear you to a jury. So there really is, in 99% of cases, uh, no way at all that you can actually, actually pick a jury that's going to help you because you just don't know. Andrew, you sort of only really have to take a passing interest in US politics to know that the US Supreme Court is a very political body. There's a lot of, you know, it, a lot is mentioned in any political campaign. How different is that to what the process of appointing Australian judges is like? Sure. And th that is one of the really big differences because if I looked on Wikipedia, I could find out which political party appointed each of our high court justices. But without looking, I wouldn't have a clue. I can tell you for the US system, which I have nothing to do with, exactly who appointed each justice because that's a huge part of their judicial process. A lot of judicial decisions that are made seem to be made from a political perspective and a jurist's political agenda or affiliations or perspective seems to drive a lot of the decisions. That's really not the case in Australia. And I don't know whether that's about the kind of cases we have or kind of subtle differences in the laws, but politics doesn't really come into it in anything like the same way. So Whilst, of course, politicians do appoint judges and magistrates and high court justices, as we've just seen quite recently, there's really very little political affiliations that go into it. I couldn't tell you who any of these seven high court justices vote for. I wouldn't have a clue because so far as I can tell, their political affiliations don't really seem to affect the decisions they make. Now, of course, they all have their own personalities and their own opinions and perspectives and there are patterns in the way judges vote. Um, because you can see that they come from a certain perspective or approach things in a certain way. But so far as I can tell in Australia, it's very little or in fact nothing to do with politically what side of the fence they fall on. How are judges appointed to the different courts in Australia? So they're all appointed by the executive. So the relevant attorney general appoints them. 
Uh, there's always a process of consultation. Uh, in some cases, depending upon the court, there's an application process and even interviews uh, not to find out which way you'll rule and not to find out where your political affiliations lie, but to speak to the person and assess what they're like. But whether or not there's an interview or a, a process around the appointment, generally speaking, they're all appointed by the executive arm of the government. And they're typically people who have worked in the law for a very long time. Yes, definitely. In the criminal courts, for example, uh, the majority of the people who are appointed were either prosecutors or defence lawyers, one side or the other. And then depending upon the court you're talking about, uh, overwhelmingly the people who are appointed have a deal of experience in that jurisdiction, which is logical when you think about it. When you say that the bench is then made up of former prosecutors and former defence lawyers, how does someone know then that they're not going to come in and, you know, bat for their own side? Well, it's no longer their side, Amy. That's the thing. Look, the first thing to say is all judicial officers do take an oath and an oath is, amongst other things, to be impartial. And that probably sounds like something a lawyer would say, but that is a really big deal. And my experience is that judicial officers do take that really, really seriously. While certainly there can be a perception that a certain officer is leaning one side more than the other, I think you can rest assured that every judge and magistrate and justice is doing the best they can to be impartial. True it is that people do come from certain backgrounds and people do see things from a certain perspective. That's human nature. But all judicial officers, in my experience, are doing the best they can to be impartial. But the important thing to remember is two things. Firstly, it's all being done in public. It is all being seen by other people. But more importantly, if you don't feel like you got a fair shake, you can appeal. And what happens then is a, a, a group of judges or a group of justices will look at the transcript and pour over everything that happened. And if they disagree with the result, they can reverse a result in court. So even if you do feel that way, and I, I would strongly suggest it's probably just a, a feeling or a perception on your part, there is the right to appeal against a decision and have different judges look at what happened. Are there judges in Australia who have ever been reprimanded for doing the wrong thing? So if you don't feel uh, that you've been treated fairly by a judge, there is a process for which you can appeal. More fundamentally, if you feel a judge was unfair or was biased or treated you unfairly, there is a process whereby you can make a complaint to the Judicial Commission and they have a role to have oversight over judges and make sure that things are being done right. And in extreme cases, there can be a, a process whereby a justice or a judge or a magistrate can be removed from office. Now, I've had a chance to read through a lot of the history around this area, and people might think, oh, well, that's all the biased and dodgy and corrupt judges. Because our system's so robust, that's actually really, really rare. What's far more common is where there are mental or physical difficulties that have started to interfere in a judge's performance of their role. And in most of those cases, you can see once the complaints start coming and once suddenly people realize what's going on, in almost every single case, as you look through the archives, the officer in question has jumped before they're pushed. So people, as, as is human nature, they do become unwell, as I said, physically, mentally, or something else. And there's a process whereby that can be pointed out to them. In extreme cases, it can result in a very complicated and drawn-up process where they can be removed. But as I said, in the vast majority of cases, once it comes to their attention, that they do the right thing. And there's a retirement age as well for judges in Australia, right? There is, yes. What age is that? It's different in every jurisdiction. But sort of around the... Around the 70 mark. So yeah, no, there's no like 95-year-old We don't have people judge. being wheeled in the hospital beds to sit <laughs> on the bench, no. Okay, good. To lie on the bench, I suppose. <laughs> when you watch and consume a lot of true crime media... And Can I say, I, I love... <laughs> 
true crime media. <laughs> uh, it feels almost trashy sometimes, but despite being in the in the guts of it in my job, I, I love that. Uh, on weekends for fun, I do crime stuff on my on podcasts. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I imagine a lot of people, it goes two ways, right? People sure. would either still love it and live it and breathe it. Other people think, no, it's, it's awful. And I, I'm sure, I mean, what are some of the benefits of these sorts of programs being out there? Is there an educative function that they serve? There is. My view has always been the more the public knows about the justice system, the more they can see what actually goes on, the better for everyone. Because people do see that there is a robustness, that there is a quality to our justice system. There's an enormous amount of really awful TV and really awful uh, books that really seek to uh, not so much glamorize, but uh, make a huge fuss about the way stuff happens. And in fact, when you get stuck into the details and actually get to see it happening in real life, I think most people come away from that impressed with how robust it is and impressed with the systems and controls that we have. Heaven knows it's not perfect, but in my experience, the more people know and the more people see about the actual justice system as opposed to trashy TV shows, uh, the better their faith in the system. Do you have examples of when these shows get these things wrong? What are the things that they're most likely to stuff up, basically? Sure. I mean, the hardest part for any journalist or any person who's trying to tell the public about a real case is... By its very nature, it's compressed. Even the shortest jury trial takes a few days, and many take months or even a year. No podcast could possibly comprehensively cover, or no TV show could comprehensively cover what happens in one of these trials. So anyone trying to do this has to summarize and has to focus on what they think is important and has to focus on what they think gives uh, the listener or the watcher the best understanding of what's happened. And that is subjective. What one person thinks is important might be very different from someone else. So even with the best of intentions, a listener or a watcher can come away with a very distorted view of what happened. There might be one part of a trial that's particularly fascinating or exciting or interesting, so a journalist naturally wants to speak about that. But if you speak to the lawyers or the judges or or the jury even involved, their opinion might be something that something very different was very important. So there is a tension between trying to tell a good story and trying to make it interesting and comprehensible and what you might call the reality about what's happening in a case. Do you think it's also difficult sometimes to demystify or explain legal terms that are used in a courtroom setting? And Absolutely. Then how they're explained in, a, in the media is, is sort of not entirely accurate? Yeah, the law is complex. Uh, juries are incredibly complex. Even in a simple trial, a judge will spend maybe half an hour to an hour explaining the law that applies to this trial. And that's not suited to a short podcast or a TV show. Uh, there's an enormous amount of complexity in any trial about the evidence, about the witnesses, and by nature, anyone reporting on it is going to summarize and is going to do the best they can in most cases to faithfully explain what it was. But these things are complicated and no one can get an understanding of an entire jury trial in a 10-minute package. I want to run a couple of phrases... I suppose, accusations in a way that you often hear pop up in these sorts of programs or in public discourse and have you explain what they mean. Is that okay? Sure, yeah. What is a miscarriage of justice? A miscarriage of justice usually refers to a circumstance where a trial or a hearing or a legal process has gone sufficiently far off the rails uh, that an appeals court thinks it should be overturned. Now, that is, of course, a subjective description But generally speaking, and this is, again, I'm summarizing, I'm trying to compress, just because there wasn't one mistake or one issue in a trial doesn't necessarily mean an appeal should succeed or doesn't necessarily mean there should be a do-over. There's a sort of bar you need to get to before an appeals court will say, we need to 
fix this problem. Generally speaking, uh, that's when there is a miscarriage of justice. So you can't turn up to an appeal court and say, I keep telling you I didn't do it. Well, you can try. I mean, people <laughs> do, that's for sure. But uh, the appeals court looking for something more concrete than that, that's for sure. Another one that I have heard used in various programs is ineffective assistance of counsel. So that's a term from the US um, and it's not a term we would usually use in Australia. There's various constitutional rights and a whole web of law in the US where ineffective assistance of counsel can mean a person uh, gets to succeed in their appeal and have a trial again. There is certainly a basis upon which you can appeal in Australia um, on incompetence of counsel. If the conduct of a trial was, the conduct of your trial counsellor, I should say, was so poor that there was a miscarriage of justice, back to that previous term, then an appeals court may decide that the trial should be done over again. So I want to talk about how someone becomes a lawyer and how someone can call themselves a lawyer. Anthony, how can someone tell if their lawyer actually is even legally qualified to call themselves a lawyer? So to call yourself a lawyer, you actually need to be admitted into the Supreme Court of New South Wales. Before you can practice as a solicitor, you actually need to get a practicing certificate from the Law Society of New South Wales. The way for people to check if if their lawyer does have the proper practicing certificate is to look at the Register of Practitioners on the Law Society website. And that's got information about who they are, where they work, and then what type of practicing certificate they have. And that will tell you whether they can call themselves a lawyer and, and provide legal services. To be admitted as a solicitor, I know people have to go to law school and get a law degree. Are there any other steps that they need to take before they can be admitted? Basically, they have to get legal qualifications. But the other thing that they have to do is complete what's called practical legal training. And that involves some further study but it also involves working under supervision in a role in probably a law firm where you get some practical skills that enable you to practice. And then once you've done that, you can apply for admission with the board in New South Wales. Once you're admitted, you then have to get a practising certificate before you can practise. Are there any types of character tests or anything that people have to do before they're admitted? Yeah, there are. So both the Legal Profession Admissions Board and us when we issue practising certificates have to be satisfied that the person is fit and proper. And when we look at that question, we look at all sorts of things. Has the person got a conviction for a criminal offence? Have they been bankrupt? Have they failed to comply with orders of the court? There's a whole range of things that we look at, including whether they've done something wrong in another profession. If somebody isn't happy with how their lawyer ran a case, do they have any steps to take action against that lawyer? Yeah, look, unfortunately, sometimes things don't go quite as planned and people are sometimes not happy with the outcome. We have a legislative scheme which ensures that people can make a complaint if they're not happy with what their lawyer has done. Before they do that, we'd encourage people to try and talk to their lawyer to see if they can sort out the issue. But if you make a complaint, you can make that complaint in New South Wales to the to the Legal Services Commissioner. They can either deal with the matter as a, what's called a consumer matter. They can order a refund or ask that work be done again or make the lawyer apologise. If it's a really serious matter where there may be a breach of the, the ethical standards that solicitors must follow, then it can be investigated either by the commission or by the law society. And at the end of that process, the lawyer, if the complaint's substantiated, can be disciplined. 
What would be some of the things that people might complain about regarding their lawyer? Probably the most common one is about the fees charged. And there's a whole process to get the fees that are charged reviewed. And there's a structure in place to ensure that the costs of legal services are disclosed as well. Sometimes they can complain that the lawyer, you know, hasn't taken the right steps in the proceedings or hasn't followed what the client instructions were and they haven't done what the client asked them to do. So there's a whole lot of different things that people can complain about. Sounds like a lot of these issues can also really come down to communication. So people should always feel like they can talk to their lawyer throughout the process. Is that something that you think could prevent some of these complaints going? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, underlying a lot of complaints is the quality of communication between the lawyer and the client. And it's really important for lawyers to to explain things properly to their clients, but also for clients if they don't understand something, to seek further information from their lawyer as well. And they'll generally be happy to help and explain things again. If someone is not happy with their court result or they feel that perhaps they've been treated unfairly, are there steps in place for them to challenge a decision? Pretty much every decision is appellable in some way. You can appeal to a higher court. Now, of course, every different jurisdiction and every different court and every different set of circumstances applies differently. But generally speaking, if you feel you've been hard done by, you almost definitely can appeal to some other court. And if you don't know which one, you should chat to a lawyer and they'll probably let you know very quickly. I think sometimes there can be a perception that law is accessible if you can pay for it. What happens to someone if they feel that they're in this David and Goliath battle and they're taking on someone or they're up against someone who has more means and resources than they can? It really depends on the specific situation, but there is, of course, legal aid available in New South Wales. Um, That's obviously subject to means test, but there are other options as well. So there's a number of community legal centres around New South Wales. In addition, there's a number of specialist uh, community legal centres as well that focus on specific groups or specific issues. As well as that, the Law Society also has a pro bono referral scheme and you could look at the Law Society website to get details about the referral services that we have available. And is that also where people can find out information too? If they have engaged a lawyer, that's where they can check that that lawyer is able to represent them? Yeah, that's that's correct. So there's a register of solicitors on the New South Wales Law Society website where you can check the details of the person you've engaged to make sure that they've got the right qualifications and the right certificate to, to represent you. The other thing that you can do is you can look at the Legal Services Commission website and that has a disciplinary register which will tell you if the person you've engaged who's a lawyer has done the wrong thing and has been sanctioned for that as well. So they're two really important resources that everyone should look at when they're engaging a lawyer. It seems to me, a non-lawyer, that things change all the time in the law. There's new legislation, there's really big important cases that come down that have huge impacts and repercussions. How do lawyers keep across all of that? So if you were admitted 10, 15 years ago, how can someone who has engaged you know that you're still completely on top of your stuff? Yeah, every lawyer that holds a practising certificate, that's subject to a condition that they have to complete continuing professional education each year. So every year they have to do 10 hours of extra study to keep them up 
to date with the law. They also, I would say, have a general ethical responsibility to keep across changes in the law so that they uh, can represent their clients and get the best possible outcome for their clients as well. But the main thing is the annual renewal of their practising certificate where they have to tell us that they've done that extra education each and every year. Andrew, let's say that I have committed a crime. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, I've committed a crime and I engage you as my lawyer and I come to you. Good move. Yeah. (laughs) It's the first first good decision I've obviously made in a while, it would seem, based on the situation I'm hypothetically in. And I come to you and I say, Andrew, I did it. What can you do for me? That's an incredibly common question. And it's a misconception in the sense that I can count in 15 years of practice, I can count on one hand the number of times that's happened. Wow. People come to me and say, I want to plead guilty and get sentenced. That happens all the time. People come to me and say, I didn't do it. That happens all the time. People come to me and say, I did it, but help me get off. Less, less than five times in 15 years. Wow. But okay. it's a very interesting question because there are a lot of laws and uh, ethical rules around that process. One of the fundamental duties a lawyer has is honesty to the court. Now, that doesn't mean that the lawyer has to go and spill the beans to the court and tell the court everything they know it does mean the lawyer can't mislead the court. So, for example, if you happen to know about some evidence that exists, you don't have to, as a defence lawyer, give that to the court or tell the court about it. You can't lie to the court and say it doesn't exist. So to come to your question, if you've hypothetically done this crime and say, I've done it, can you help me? A lawyer can ethically still help that person plead not guilty and can still defend them and, to put it colloquially, can make the prosecution prove it. But what the lawyer can't do is mislead the court. So say it was a bank robbery. You seem like a a person to be a good bank robber. And you (laughs) say to me, yep, I did the robbery, right? I did it, but I don't want to plead guilty. That's fine. I can go to the court and I can say that video is really blurry and that security guard wasn't wearing his glasses and those fingerprints, those are dodgy fingerprints. Mm. And I'm blonde. A lot of people are blonde. A lot of people are blonde. What I can't do is go to court and say, Anthony did it. (laughs) You should believe it was Anthony, not Amy. Because I, I know that's not true. I can say... These are the problems with the evidence. This is why you, the jury, wouldn't be convinced. I can't run a narrative I know to be false. And that's probably sounds like clever lawyering or just kind of semantics, but it is an important difference. As a defense lawyer, you can challenge the evidence. You can test the evidence. You can suggest the evidence doesn't stack up. You can't argue something you know to be untrue. Andrew, one of the, I imagine that the popularity of true crime podcasts and true crime TV shows shows that a lot of people are really interested in what takes place inside a courtroom. Do you have friends and family who are fascinated by what the court process is like? When people say, what do you do? I'm a lawyer. What kind of law? Oh, criminal law. Oh, really? Criminal law? The interesting stuff. You must meet some great people and it's a good conversation. the opposite? You must meet some not great people? Allegedly, please. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of questions do they ask you? People want to know what kind of cases you work on. There's a kind of community understanding about what lawyers do, but there's, of course, a huge amount of other things that we're involved in. And a lot of the work that we do isn't particularly glamorous. Uh, The vast majority of my cases aren't high profile. Uh, There aren't cases that get me chased down the street by cameras. People want to hear what it's like being a criminal lawyer. They want to know whether it's like the TV shows. They want to know whether you are fighting with the cops and, you know, brawling with the judiciary and chasing clients down the street. And, of course, it's far less exciting than any of that. But the one thing I always say about my job is it's hard work and it's tiring and it's stressful, but it's always interesting. There's always uh, some new exciting drama coming down the pipe. I mean, you've made it sound very interesting and exciting. It is. It's not just me. It is interesting and exciting. Can anybody come into a courtroom and watch court proceedings? Generally speaking, yes. So there's a really important 
kind of starting point with our law uh, that laws should be done in public. Uh, people should be able to walk in because if you're able to walk in and see what's going on, you have far more confidence that things are being done right. If things are done in secret behind closed doors, well, who knows what's happening? Uh, there are two really important exceptions to that. Generally speaking, sexual assault complainants or victims were giving evidence. The court's normally closed for their evidence. And the children's court is typically a place you can't walk into. But generally speaking, if you know where a local courthouse is, you can roll on down between 10 and 4 on a weekday and something should be going on. Andrew, you're a criminal defence solicitor. What misconceptions do you think people have about your job? I think one of the big ones that people speak to me about is the perception is that the only thing a defence lawyer can try to do is try to find special loopholes to get their scumbag clients off criminal charges. And of course, what I do is completely different to that. The impression people get from news media often is whenever someone's found not guilty or where charges are dismissed, there's some sort of clever lawyer shenanigans that have got that result. And of course, nothing's further from the truth. The criminal- I mean, you are clever. Wow. Well, well. <laughs> cleverish. <laughs> There's a real important role that defence lawyers have, in particular in holding the state accountable. And by that I mean the, the, the police or the DPP or some prosecuting body will come to court and say, we suggest that this person has done this criminal offence. And the person might say, well, no, I didn't. And then a court has to decide. And what defence lawyers do is make sure that when the court decides, it has the proper material to do so. And that might mean presenting another side of the story. It might mean calling witnesses. It might mean cross-examining witnesses who say this, that, or the other to do the best you can to show the court that the Crown hasn't proved its case. If you don't have defence lawyers running obstruction in that way, then you do have a police state where someone can be imprisoned simply because someone says something happened. It's incredibly important for the justice system that the system has the assistance of defence lawyers to make sure that the state's accusations are tested that the prosecution's held accountable so that there can actually be some justice. People probably feel like justice often doesn't look the same for everybody. And there can be many reasons why somebody can feel that they won't be believed, whether or not that's by the police, whether or not it's by their lawyer, whether or not it's by the court. That can be anything from gender, race, sexuality, previous experience, previous criminal history. How can people trust in the system? I guess what I can say to that is, of course, the system isn't perfect. I don't think anyone could seriously say our system is absolutely perfect. There's not a a single thing that should be changed. Of course, there are things that can be changed and should be changed. And there's a constant process where the system is being re-examined and redeveloped and new changes and processes as technology and society and and as norms change across, across Australia. So there's a constant process whereby people are trying to make it better. But on the whole, we are incredibly fortunate in Australia. We have a very robust system. We have an an excellent regulatory system around it all. Our justices, judges and magistrates overwhelmingly uh, are very hardworking, very responsible, um, incredibly intelligent people doing the best they can to ensure justice is done. Now, people's perspectives won't always match with that. People have bad experiences. They'll, They'll lose cases. They won't be believed. They'll be wrongfully convicted, whatever it might be. So, No one could say the system's perfect, but there's an enormous number of people from the regulatory side who are doing everything they can to make it work. There's a hardworking, capable, experienced, intelligent judiciary doing everything they can. And there's thousands of lawyers who, through doing their job and doing it well, do what they can to help the system work well. It isn't perfect, but it's very, very, very good, and we're very lucky to have it. This sounds like a great introduction to your new podcast, 
carriage of justice. Oh, yes. Well, exactly. I can can ride in a horse-drawn carriage. It'd be amazing. (laughs) Wouldn't really work on podcasts, would it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel incredibly reassured about the robust system that Australia has in place to make sure that anyone who's appearing before court has a lawyer who knows completely what they're doing and there's no need to end up on a true crime podcast or documentary series anytime soon. So, Thank you so much, Andrew and Anthony. Thanks, Amy. No problem. Been a pleasure. Lawfully Explained is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. The Law Society's producer is Francisco Silva. Our audio is by Kelly Fulston. The executive producer is Todd Stevens, And the producer is Thomas Thexton. Listener.